What's up? This is Ellie Einhorn, host of the Talk House podcast. Today, I'm joined by... Hi, it's Amy Rose Spiegel, Talk House Music's Editor-in-Chief. And we have some very exciting news. We are so stoked to tell you that we've been nominated for a Webby Award. Woo! We've been honored in the podcast and digital audio category for Best Individual Episode. This was a very powerful episode featuring Rose McGowan and Meredith Graves in conversation. Now, you probably know that Rose and Meredith are both really vocal feminists. This conversation is especially interesting because it takes place just before sexual harassment exploded into a wider national conversation. Loyal listeners, in case you missed this, which I know you didn't, you can check it out at iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page. And if you like it, there's actually two components to this Webby Award. In the first, the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences selects who they think should be the winner. But in the second, you do. So if you like the episode, please go to the Webby Award site and vote for us. You can also find the direct voting link at TalkHouse.com. And while you're there, why not check out Meredith and Rose's incredible past contributions? Rock the vote! We want you. Today's episode is the latest in TalkHouse's collaboration with the iconic Strand Bookstore right here in New York City. It was recorded in the Rare Book Room, which is one of my favorite places on earth, and even more so now that we've been working together. You might remember the last talk we did with the Strand between Chris France from the Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club speaking with Richard Lloyd of television. This talk brings an equally venerable artist to the podcast for the first time, the bard of barking himself, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, the folk punk, poet, pioneer, Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg has been a national treasure in his native Britain since 1983, when he came out of the gates swinging with the brilliant LP, Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy. That is such an amazing record that qualifies as one of those, I just realized that this wardrobe leads to Narnia records. Amy Rose, would you mind if we play a clip of one of my favorite all-time songs? You know, I think I would love that. Let's do it. Mark the producer, could you please cue up A New England? I saw two shooting stars last night, so I wished on them. If they were only satellites, it's wrong to wish on space hardware. I wish, I wish, I wish you'd care. I don't want to change the world. I'm not looking for New England. I'm just looking for another girl. Such a beautiful song. Right, and, and, and he used his beautiful songs for so many political causes. This is a guy who toured with the Smiths, Johnny Marr, and Paul Weller's The Style Council with the Red Wedge Organization, which was combating the rampant growth of British nationalism. This is a guy who played for the striking coal miners in the 80s. This is a guy who founded Jail Guitar Doors, which you might've heard Wayne Kramer, the American representative, talk about in his episode, named after a Clash song, founded five years after his friend Joe Strummer from The Clash died. Jail Guitar Doors brings musical instruments to prisoners. It's really powerful stuff. Billy Bragg took a lot of those cues in his activist life from his idol, Woody Guthrie. I actually first heard of Billy Bragg through his work with Wilco when they went through Guthrie's archives and recorded original compositions for what they found there. That turned into the absolutely brilliant Grammy-nominated Mermaid Avenue LP. There was such a huge demand that they ended up releasing a second and third volume. Amy Rose, you and I were talking off air. It turns out we have the exact same favorite song from Mermaid Avenue. Should we play it? Yeah, let's do it. This is Way Over Yonder in the minor key. Now I've walked a long, long ways Still look back to my tanglewood days I've led lots of girls since then to stray Saying ain't nobody that can sing like me Ain't nobody that can sing like me Way over yonder in the minor key Billy Bragg has always toyed with new sounds, new inspirations, and new approaches. And just last year, he added to his already amazing resume the titles of author and musicologist. His book, Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, chronicles a genre which rose to prominence in Britain in the 1950s. Now, listeners, if you've never heard of Skiffle, you are not alone. Most people in America never have. As Billy Bragg himself puts it, this is a movement that lasted for two years and was, quote, 
English schoolboys playing Lead Belly's repertoire in the 1950s. It was a purely British phenomenon. Now, Amy Rose, I grew up between Chicago and Wales, and, and where I'm from in North Wales is not far from Liverpool, where, of course, the Beatles are from. So one weekend when I was a little boy, my mother drove us to Liverpool to take the Magical Mystery Tour, which is this fantastic tour, uh, a bus that's all painted like the Magical Mystery Tour bus that takes you all over the Beatles Liverpool. You see where they used to rehearse. You see their, their childhood homes. And what I learned on this tour is that a young Paul McCartney tried to weasel his way into John Lennon's skiffle group. Both of the guys were extremely influenced by a chart-topping artist named Lonnie Donegan. Lonnie Donegan was actually one of the most popular skiffle artists. And his number one record was a cover of Lead Belly's Rock Island Line. Should we play some of it? Let's do it. And when you drive, I think he's safely on the other side. You shout back down the line to the man. He said, I fooled you. I fooled you. I got pig iron. I got pig iron. I got old pig iron. Now I'll tell you where I'm going, boy. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is a road to ride, yes, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find it, get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. I may be right, may be wrong, you know you're going to miss Now, Bragg posits that the reason Skiffle is so very important is that it was a crucial influence on Van Morrison and more importantly, the previously mentioned Beatles who are absolute skiffle fanatics as teenagers, incorporated a lot of its musicality into their own work. And the Beatles, of course, went on to change the sound of Western music forever. So there's obviously a lot of history here, which Billy Bragg goes into. He also talks about cultural appropriation in music and then appropriation of that appropriation. He talks about how young women wanting to jive created an entirely new gig infrastructure. I learned that Calypso hit the UK charts for the first time due to a cricket match. Right. I had no idea about that one. And, and I learned how the spread of skiffle and for that matter, rap mimics the fidget spinner. Should we roll the tape? Let's do it. Well then, here we are. <clears throat> I was rather worried we wouldn't be here today. I've had a rather uh, trying afternoon at Dulles International Airport where thunderstorms were making it impossible to take off. But we of the Apprehensive Flyer Club have a, an old saying, which is better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you were on the ground. So <laughs> I didn't let it kind of run away with me. And I knew, I knew that such was the uh, interesting skiffle here in New York that you'd be sitting there waiting whatever the outcome. So without any further ado, because we've had enough of that already, skiffle. Skiffle is a word that is one of those words that means something different in American than it means in English, like uh, pants or fag or socialism. <laughs> it's a completely different word. Uh, if you if you cross the Atlantic, so let's 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 go let's cut straight to the chase on on that. The first real uh, uh, use of the word skiffle was um, in the 1920s in the African American community. Um, the the classic story puts it in the South Side of Chicago, but I'm sure it was much more broadly used than that. But it was basically a term that the African American community used to describe something that we might call a rent party. Uh, where they would uh, raise money to pay their rent by holding a, a party where they charge people a few cents entry. They would cook some food, often food, down-home food, that is food from where they came from. They were many of them migrants from the south to the industrial north. And they brew up some hooch and usually would have a, a barrel house piano player there and gambling and dancing and the occasional fight would take place. There was a guy named Dan Burley who was uh, a kind of renaissance man in uh, 30s and 40s culture. He was a co-founder of Ebony Magazine. And as a teenager, he played barrel house piano in these, uh, in these events. And in 1947, someone said to him, wouldn't it be great to make a record of those barrel house tunes you used to play back in the old days at those great parties when you were in your late teens. So he got together with uh, Sticks McGee and Brownie McGee and they recorded an album called Southside Shake in 1947 of barrel house piano accompanied with a bit of bass and a little bit of guitar. But fundamentally it was an instrumental piano album 
And the title, the, uh, the, the band that he put together, he gave the title Dan Burley and his Skiffle Boys. But in that context, he's talking about Dan Burley and his Party Boys, what we would say in the UK, Dan Burley and his Knees Up Boys. Knees Up is a, a kind of Cockney slang term for a, a, a party, a roll back the carpets kind of party. So Burley did that in the context of the trad jazz revival. Now, trad jazz is a movement that began in the late 1930s when music fans were responding or reacting against the uh, commercialization of jazz and its transformation from something vital in the African-American community into something commercial uh, in the mainstream of American culture in the form of swing, big bands, crooners, the trad jazz guys believed that the spirit of jazz, the true spirit of jazz, never left New Orleans. And that in order to make jazz vital again, they should go back to how jazz was in the period from about 1895 to about 1915, which is significantly when, around the time the first jazz recordings were made. New Orleans jazz, trad jazz in its, in its purest form in New Orleans, uh, had no soloists. It was a collective endeavor. Everybody played around the tune and around the rhythm. So when Louis Armstrong went north and started playing solos, he kind of became a a sort of, uh, if not the enemy, then certainly a a bad example. The trad jazzers drew a line in the sand just above Lake Pontchartrain and said anyone north of there uh, is uh, not one of us. In the United Kingdom, there was a, after the Second World War, there was a, there was a kind of trad jazz movement among young musicians. And they desperately, there was something about this music that really moved them and, and they, they really wanted to, to play it. The only place you could really, you didn't really hear it much on the radio, on the BBC. There was only one radio station, well, there two radio stations, but they were both the BBC. And they kind of mediated culture, particularly they mediated youth culture as well, and in the sense that they didn't play any youth culture. They just played music for adults and music for children. If you were a jazz fan in, in the UK in the, in the 40s and 50s, the way you found out about your music was to go to something called a record recital where a jazz critic would play records from his collection and talk about the context in which they were recorded. Uh, and these, these events were capable of filling Wigmore Hall, which holds uh, 1,200 people. They were really the key way of being part of that, that jazz scene. Now, for the British musicians, the young British musicians who actually wanted to play jazz, There was no tutorial whatsoever. Unfortunately, due to uh, a dispute between the American Federation of Musicians and the British Musicians Union, no American band toured in the United Kingdom from 1935 to 1955. And likewise, no American band, uh, no British band toured in the United States of America uh, during that same period. It began when the uh, AF of M stipulated that any British band leader who wanted a tour in the United States of America would have to use exclusively American musicians and take out American citizenship. So uh, the British Musicians Union got in touch with the Ministry of Labour who put a reciprocal stipulation in. But it's, and you know how much I love trade unions and how much I believe in organising. This is a shameful episode in our history and it should be done to music as well in some ways it's kind of heartbreaking for me but it's all in the book because it's an absolute key part of what what happened uh, with skiffle so all the skiffle all the uh, j- trad jazz musicians had to work on were recordings made in the 1920s and in these recordings because of the primitive nature of the equipment the players in new orleans blew really hard on their instruments because there was only one microphone and they wanted to make sure they got into the grooves. So the British trad guys in the 1940s and the 1950s listened to these records, thought that's the way you play trad jazz. They didn't really have any sort of timbre to their playing. So they blew like Billy-O. And as a result of that, they, uh, their lips were numb after about 30 minutes and they couldn't play anymore. So in the spirit of the record recital to educate their audiences, They put down their brass instruments and they picked up acoustic guitars, a washboard for rhythm and a double bass from the jazz band and proceeded to play what we might broadly refer to as Lead Belly's repertoire. Lead Belly being the greatest folk singer the United States of America ever produced as both a performer of songs, a collector of songs, a writer of songs. Lead Belly is to Woody Guff, well, Woody regarded Lead Belly in the same way that Bob Dylan regarded Woody. Lead Belly lived just along... Uh, 14th Street, we come down it on the way in the cab and 
Woody, when he lived in Coney Island, used to come round to Leadbelly's house and Martha, uh, Leadbelly's wife, used to cook up southern food when someone like uh, Aunt Molly Jackson was in town and they'd all get round the table and sing and talk and Woody would sit in the corner kind of taking it all in. Leadbelly was a giant, is a giant still, I think. So they performed these songs because they believed that the, the blues predated jazz. They, they, it's not actually true that. In some ways, the 12-bar form as we know it post-dates uh, New Orleans jazz by a couple of decades. But because the New Orleans musicians referred to, used the word blues to refer to what we might call jam, the trad jazzers didn't get the right way around. So in, in trying to educate people like they did at the um, record recitals, they played this, this music and they called this a breakdown session. They had a breakdown session. It was very popular with the young people who were coming to trad jazz gigs. Young people in the 1950s who wanted to jive were banned from ballrooms in my country because ballroom dancing in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom, I'm sure it's the same here in, in America, ballroom dancing is processional. It kind of moves, it constantly moves in a great big circle like a, a spiral galaxy, moves around. Whereas if you're jiving, although you're moving a lot, you're more or less on the spot. So if you've got kids jiving and grown-ups processionally ballroom dancing, you're going, to have, you're going to have traffic issues. So jiving was banned. And these kids went to the trad jazz gigs. They went and jived at the trad jazz gigs. Trad jazz was up-tempo enough for them to be able to jive to. So they, they really liked these breakdown sessions. And uh, the Ken Collier jazz men, who were, the, who were the, the group that actually originally formulated the breakdown session, they had a, a particularly good performer, a guy named Lonnie Donegan, who was their banjo player. And he, he was kind of the closest we had in, in the UK to a proper blues shouter, although he was more of a squeak than a shout. But you have to understand the, the context of what he was doing to the, the white bread nature of British music at the time. It was, it was very uh, kind of operatic in some ways, sort of uh, Mario Lanza-type singers in the charts and stuff like that. So this... Uh, Ken Collier Jazz Band are doing a session for the BBC and they decide to do some of these breakdown songs. And the, and the producer recognises that this is a completely different kind of music. It's a completely different setup. I mean, it's, you know, the, the trad jazz band is just instrumental and it's brass. But these guys are playing acoustic guitars. Lonnie Donegan seems to be the leader of it and it's not jazz. So he says, he's got a form, he's got a fill in his form. He says to the manager, of the Ken Collier Jazz Band, Ken Collier's older brother Bill, who happens to be an expert in, in jazz. He's, uh, he works in Collets, the premier jazz shop in the UK, which is uh, run by the communists, interestingly. He says to, to, to Bill Collier, well, what band is this? And what music are they playing? And Bill Collier says, this is the Ken Collier Skiffle Group, and they're playing Skiffle. And in doing that, he takes the meaning of the word uh, from a... Uh, uh, an African-American slang word for a rent party and turns it into a musical term for a sub-genre of American roots music exclusively played by British people in the 1950s. And uh, in many ways, that is the 140 uh, character definition of skiffle. <laughs> or actually, the actual definition is English schoolboys playing Lead Belly's repertoire in the 1950s. Basically, that's, that's, that's kind of what, if you were trying to explain it totally out of the blue to someone. So in the context of uh, the trad jazz revival, Ken Collier leaves the, the jazz band that Donegan's in and it becomes the Chris Barber jazz band. And in 1954, they, they're making a, uh, a trad jazz album called New Orleans Joys for Decca Records. And as the session gets underway, it becomes clear that they don't have enough new material. They need eight tracks and I only have five. And the producer is just beside himself at this because as he said, Deco have given him 30 pounds to make this record. And he, you know, he says, well, what are we gonna do? So they, they kind of jam up a song and then Lonnie Donegan says, why don't we do one of the skiffle numbers? So the producer kind of says, I don't care what the heck you do, mate, I just need eight tracks. So the rest of the band go home, Donegan gets his guitar, Chris Barber plays the double bass and they, he rings up Beryl Bryden, Britain's premier washboard player, and she comes down, and together they knock out four songs, two of which end up on the album, Rock Island Line and John Henry, two Lead Belly songs. And the album comes out, and it's pretty cool, and everyone's, everyone's uh, 
groovy about it. And that's 19, 1954, 1955. And I'm just going to do a little bit of context about Britain in the mid-50s. In my country, uh, rationing of food and clothing ended in 1954, just a month before Chris Barber and Lonnie Donegan recorded Rock Iron Line for that album. If you were a kid born in 1940, let's call you John Lennon, you would be 14 before you could go into a sweet shop and buy what you wanted. You could only buy what you had the coupons for. So here was an entire generation of young adults who'd grown up with this uh, suppressed need to be able to have what they wanted, to be able to express themselves. Being have to, given what they, they uh, had to wear, hand-me-downs. Their culture mediated by a rather staid and avuncular BBC. And uh, it's this generation that leaves school around the time that rationing ends. And they find themselves very easily getting work. There's a lot of uh, semi-skilled labor out there, particularly for young women working in, in factories. This, this cohort are almost exclusively working class kids because uh, middle class and upper class kids tended to go to college, university, and then into professions that uh, defer earning until adulthood. So they don't really take part in this, this sort of sudden consumer boom because what happens in 1955 is the sales of cosmetics, of clothing, of records rocket in a way never seen before and suddenly visible to the general media are the first people in our country really properly to be defined as teenagers. There were teenagers in the, in the 30s, but they were, they were mostly upper class young women and young men who were noticed by the magazines like Tatler, the Flappers and those people. Flappers wasn't a working class phenomenon. It wasn't a mass phenomenon. It was a very small phenomenon. But this is a mass, a mass phenomenon. And also in 1955, the first commercial TV channels come on board. Uh, first in London and then in Manchester, regional commercial TV. And the BBC make their programs and they're mostly based around a kind of, you know, like PBS, you know, sort of programs that are good for you. Commercial TV, they have to make money off advertising. They import their programs from America. So they bring in I Love Lucy, they bring in Gunsmoke, they bring in Dragnet. And there's a sudden leap of American culture, particularly for the young people, a lot of cowboy series, a lot of cowboy series. And on the back of that, guys start appearing in the charts, playing guitars, singing cowboys, what our country referred to in, in the context of the charts as hillbillies. Oh, they weren't really hillbillies. Swim, uh, Slim Whitman was prominent among them. He was number one for 18 weeks in 1955 with a song called Rosemary, only surpassed by Brian Adams uh, in, the, in the 1990s uh, with uh, Do Anything For You. And there were a few other of these kind of hillbilly songs, uh, 16 Tons, and this was a kind of new phenomenon. The guitar wasn't a familiar instrument in British culture. Of course, there were guitars around, uh, there were a few of the musical artists who played guitars, but really if you heard a guitarist on the radio, they were very often outsiders. They were singing cowboys, bluesmen, Big Bill Brunsey came over a few times, got on the radio, or Calypsonians. Calypso was the defining culture of the West Indian migration that began in 1948. And in 1950, the West Indies for the first time defeated England in a cricket test. And this kind of set off this whole Calypso craze with uh, a song called Cricket, Lovely Cricket, which was a brilliant song. And London is the place for me, another one. And so in some ways, the BBC recognised that the Calypso actually comes from Trinidad rather than just everywhere in the Caribbean. It comes from Trinidad and is very much like, uh, like uh, rap. It's a very local thing that addresses issues of the news. It's a way of working people to get their voice heard. So the BBC kind of used Calypsonians to, at the end of kind of, not the actual news programs, but magazine programs. They would have a Calypsonian come and play a few songs, and uh, a song that touched on the things of the week. So that's where the guitar was visible. The charts were full of um, British uh, singers who either wore taffeta dresses or the men wore dinner jackets and bow ties, even when they were singing country and western songs. Jimmy Young had a hit with... Uh, the theme music from a Jimmy Stewart movie, the title of which has escaped me now, but on the picture of the sleeve, he's there and he's Dickie Bowtie. 
looking, looking lovely. Whereas Slim Whitman and, and uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford and these guys look more like they're out, out of the West. You know, they're kind of, they're kind of something new. And 1955 is also the year of Blackboard Jungle. And that is significant in that it's the first time that proper rock and roll is heard in my country. Blackboard Jungle is a movie uh, about a teacher played by Glenn Ford, who I think he's teaching somewhere in, in, the, in the five boroughs. And his students are all hoodlums. And he's trying to kind of uh, bring them over to education. Sidney Poitier is in the movie. It's a, it's a pretty good movie. But the key thing about it is it begins with Rock Around the Clock. The whole of Rock Around the Clock is played at the beginning of it. Now, if you've grown up in Great Britain in the years after the war, you've been used to hearing music on a speaker that's about yay big. So to go in a cinema where the speakers are this big, where the speakers have got to convey the clamor of war and the, and the tenderness of a kiss, to hear rock, rock and roll come out of that was just drove them crazy. They were dancing in the aisles. People just went to hear the song. They went just to hear the song. But the BBC didn't really play it. The BBC didn't really play it that much. Uh, you could hear it on Luxembourg, Radio Luxembourg broadcasting, a commercial station broadcasting from Central uh, uh, Western Europe, or the American Forces Network. If you could pick that up, if you had soldiers stationed in East Anglia, mostly where the air bases were, you could pick up AFN. And at the end of that year, Decca decide for some reason to release Rock Island Line from this jazz record as a standalone single with John Henry on the B-side. And in the context of the hillbilly music and the commercial TV and these kids leaving school, it leaps into the charts. It leaps into the charts. And it starts a, a kind of cultural revolution. Because the thing about Lonnie Donegan is he's not a cowboy. He looks like a cowboy. He's not wearing a dicky bow tie and a suit or a taffeta dress. He looks like a cowboy, but he actually is born in Glasgow and he's lived most of his life in London. And he's playing a guitar. He's the first British artist to get in the charts playing a guitar. And he's kind of playing it in an incredibly ramshackle way. The whole of Rock Iron Line sounds like it's going to fall apart at any minute. You know, it kind of has a velocity of its own. It kind of gets faster and faster and faster like a runaway train. In a time of metronomic slush on the radio, Rock Iron Line must have leapt out of people. Because those, those people who hear it are immediately moved to, to buy guitars and start playing this, this American, African-American roots music. Sales of acoustic guitars go in the space of a couple of years from 5,000 a year to 250,000 a year. There are stories of people in music shops saying, a man was here offering me 10 pounds for a guitar and I couldn't find one for him, what am I to do? You know, it was like, it was like a complete craze. And it was a very young craze, it was like a, a playground craze, rather than a kind of scene like it might start now with a few bands playing this music in the club. Donegan was playing in the trad jazz clubs. He was playing this music. But out in the playgrounds of the schools, kids wanted to play this music. In some ways, skiffle at heart has less in common with something like punk rock or hip hop and its roots and how it spread. It has more in common with the fidget spinner craze which some of you may be aware of. Uh, if you're not, just Google it. It's more like that. It was like every sentient schoolboy in the UK learned to play three chords on a guitar, which was how you play most of Donegan's repertoire. It was all three chords. And they were kids. They were very young kids. Van Morrison is 12 when he hears Rock Island Line. And he's familiar with Lead Belly. His father has a, a huge collection of uh, jazz and blues records, uh, which he buys off a guy uh, in Belfast who runs a shop called Atlantic Records, whose sister sends them over on the liners that come between New York and, and Belfast and Liverpool. But Van Morrison, although he's familiar with Leadbelly's repertoire, his own uh, personal musical ambitions are focused on Irish folk music because that's the only music that's being played in his community. And that's not played on a guitar, by the way. Traditional music in my country and in Ireland, if it was uh, sung, it was often unaccompanied. And if it was performed, it was often on a fiddle or a squeeze box. If you saw someone singing in a, in a, in a pub, it would usually be at a piano. Most pubs had a piano in the corner, 
people would get on it and play. They play instrumental music. They might have a sing song. You wouldn't see someone in, in the corner playing a guitar. It simply wasn't, it didn't happen. So yeah, Van Morrison is 12 when he hears Lead Belly. And uh, he suddenly thinks to him, you know, he's, the way he sees it, it's not possible for him, a 12-year-old kid in Belfast, to sing that material because it's clearly music sung by old African-American guys. And that's, you know, that's how it is. But here's Donegan and suddenly he thinks, well, maybe I could do this. And he forms his own skiffle band. George Harrison is 13 when Lonnie Donegan plays in Liverpool at the Empire for a week in November 1956. He goes every night to see Donegan. His friend, Paul McCartney, is 14. He goes one night, he comes home and he says to his dad, he doesn't want to learn a trumpet anymore, he wants to play the guitar, can he have a guitar? It's not known if John Lennon goes, uh, but interestingly, two weeks after Donegan uh, plays in Liverpool, he forms his own skiffle band, the Quarrymen. So imagine that experience time 250,000. And you've got something that I would say is unique. It's certainly unique in our culture, and it's what makes a skiffle unlike anything that happened here in the United States of America. Yeah, there was a folk revival. Yeah, there was a, a, you know, a number of musical uh, roots musics that emerged during that period in the 50s and the 60s, but there was no bunch of 12-year-old guitar-playing fanatics out there across the country playing in, uh, mostly playing, uh, they never did gigs in the way that, uh, that we do gigs now. And they never made records. Only a handful of skiffle acts made records. The whole thing was over from 56, by the middle of 58, it had been superseded by rock and roll and it was gone. But there were between 30 and 50,000 of these skiffle groups playing in church halls, scout huts, school gymnasiums, just getting together and playing. And they're really inspired by, by this, this guitar music. And I think it's, they're not just playing Lonnie Donegan Lead Belly songs. I think if you were 15 in 1958 and it said Skiffle Tonight, you, you would, what you would expect to hear is music played on a guitar. Now that might be blues, it might be uh, sk uh, Skiffle, Donegan Skiffle, it might be Calypso, it might be English folk, it could be anything. It just represents the arrival of the guitar. And the guitar becomes the defining object with which the first generation of British teenage boys declare that they are different from their parents. The guitar is the thing that, that defines them as something else. But they're still playing in these church halls and scout, but it, it needs young British women to take a lead and create the first social space for teenagers. These young women, as I said, they're mostly going to work in factories. They're getting paid a considerable amount of money for someone who's 15 years old. Their only real expense is housekeeping to their mum. And they want somewhere where they can get together. They can't, they don't really want to go to the sort of tea houses, you know, the lion's corner house where they stew the carrots and make weak tea where their mum used to take them. Socially, they, it's unacceptable for them to go in a pub alone. You just can't do that. So they, they colonise a new space that opens up in the mid-50s in Britain, which is the Cappuccino Bar. The Cappuccino Bar has this fabulously shiny gadget machine, you know? And it's, it's covered wall to wall in this wonderful new technology called Formica. <laughs> you know, after years of rationing, all of a sudden. But more importantly than that, it's a very sophisticated place because it looks to Rome, to Milan, to Paris. You know, this is not just copying American culture, which is really what's been going on in my country since the 1920s. This is Gene Seberg, not Marilyn Monroe. They're defining themselves in a, in a, in a different way, you know. They colonize the, the cappuccino bars, so the skiffle boys eventually work out that if they want to do more than just stand around with their mates twanging away, they're going to go and play somewhere, they go and play in the, in the skiffle bars. Because the skiffle bars usually had a guy with a guitar in the corner as part and parcel of it, often playing either French chanson or Spanish flamenco. But they would tend to be old guys just plonking away in the corner as part of the continental ambience. So it wasn't difficult for the skifflers to get in the back door and start thrashing away in the corner, which is kind of what happens. And in one particular coffee bar in Soho, the two eyes becomes the crucible of British rock and roll. Uh, when a skiffle kid called Tommy Steele 
does his Elvis impersonation backed by a skiffle band called the Vipers and kicks the whole thing off. And, and over the next 18 months, two years, almost every British Elvis impersonator comes through the, the Two Eyes coffee bar. And the Beatles are booked to go to Hamburg from the Two Eyes. So it's a very significant coming together of uh, young women wanting to have their own social space and jive again, wanting to jive together. That's what the young women are doing when the young men are in the scout huts. The young women are in their rooms jiving with each other and getting really good at jiving. And when they go in the clubs, they don't really want to jive, jive with some ugly old teddy boy. They kind of, if you look at the, the newsreel footage from the day, the young women are all jiving with each other and the teddy boys are like, <laughs> standing around and, and, and staring at the guitar playing skiffle boys that they don't like. So this phenomenon of skiffle kind of comes and goes between 1956 and 1958, in terms of visibility in the charts, there are a handful, not more than half a dozen, different skiffle bands. Lonnie Donegan has a complete career out of it, but most of the skiffle bands kind of come and go. But it's not what happens in 56 and 57 and 58 that's actually significant about skiffle. It's not Lonnie Donegan or Chas McDavid and Nancy Whiskey or, or the Vipers whose records now uh, cover the uh, skiffle compilations on Spotify. It's what those 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds do when they're 17, 18 and 19. Because when they get to that age, when their contemporaries in the United States of America are learning to play guitar, kind of getting around to the idea that it's a good idea to learn to play guitar, our 16, 17, 18-year-olds are already in Hamburg. They're already in Hamburg. So when the Beatles break the American charts in 1964 and have their first number one in January 1964, if please please me, there is a cohort of British groups ready to follow them into the charts that have been playing seven, eight years, some of them. That's the, that's the real significance of Skiffle. Between January 1964 and December 1965, there's a British group at number one in the US charts for 52 weeks out of 104. And every single one of them originates as a skiffle band. The Beatles, we know, the Rolling Stones, uh, the Tremolos, the Animals, even Chad and Jeremy. The only exception is Petula Clark. And she's an exception because, one, she'd already put out a dozen singles under her own name before Lonnie Donegan put out Rock Island Line. And two, she's a girl. And for all of the... the photographs I've seen, and that's really what the Skiffle has left behind, those, those 50,000 bands that didn't end up breaking America, all of them, the ones that just played for a couple of years. They've left behind literally thousands of photographs taken for uh, jokey features in local newspapers. The photo that uh, adorns the cover of the book is one of those such photographs. And uh, they're, uh, they're, they're anonymous bands, nobody knows them, but I've seen a lot of those photographs and I, I if I've seen a thousand photographs, I've seen three women in that context. It was just one of those things. Not that there weren't women involved. One of the main groups, Chas McDavid and Nancy Whiskey, uh, had a hit here in the US with uh, Freight Train, Nancy singing it. And the City uh, Ramblers also had uh, Hilda Sims and Shirley Bland in it as well. But this was, it, it was kind of like football for British schoolboys. It was just one of those things that girls didn't do. Even in the, in the magazines for young women that spoke about how to form a skiffle band, it always referred to he. It's almost, you know, it's hard looking back through our eyes now, it's hard to wonder why this, this was, but I can just say it was a different time, I suppose, is the best way to, to explain it. Now, Lonnie Donegan uh, has a hit with, with Rock Online here in the United States of America. It gets to number one in the Billboard charts in the summer of 1956. He appears on the Ed Sullivan Show and does a sketch with Ronald Reagan in which Ronald Reagan says, what is a Lonnie Donegan? But interesting, when he's marketed here in the United States of America as the Irish hillbilly. He's neither. He's not Irish and he's not a hillbilly. But the significance of that term is that it puts him up as a rival of a guy who was being marketed at the same time called the hillbilly cat, Elvis Presley. And not only are Donegan and Presley contemporaries, but when Lonnie Donegan recorded Rock Island Line in uh, the 13th of July, 1954, just a week, nine days before in Memphis at Sun Records, Sam Phillips was trying to coax an Ernest Tubb song out of a rather shy truck driver. And uh, when it wasn't going anywhere, he bade uh, this kid to take a break. They were cracking a few cokes, him and the bass player and the guitar player, when he picked up 
an acoustic guitar and started goofing around with an old blues song called That's Alright Mama and he spat it up and played it in a kind of funny way and the bass player joined and the guitar player joined and the Sam Felix came back out of the control room and said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, we're just playing. He said, well, back it up, try and find a start and let's record it. And that was how Elvis Presley made his first single. Just a week before Donegan records that Rock Island line. Old blues song sped up, no drums. Rockabilly doesn't have drums. But more importantly, two guys desperately trying to save a recording session that's going nowhere. It's, it's so synchronicitous to almost be uh, unbelievable. So Donegan inspires a, a load of impersonators here in the United States of America in the sense that uh, when uh, someone had a hit, other record labels would try and do copies. And uh, interestingly, Donegan's version of the song differs from Lead Belly's version of the song. In Lead Belly's version of the song, in the, in the uh, spoken introduction, the uh, signalman is telling the train driver to go in the hole, Leadbelly says. Now, what he's talking about there is in the golden age of railway, um, freight trains in America had to give way to, pass to express trains. And what the, the signalman is saying is there's an express train coming, you've got to go in the hole to let it pass. But there's an exemption if you're carrying livestock on animal welfare grounds. So the train driver says, I've got all livestock, I've got pigs, I've got horses. So the, the signalman says, okay, you can carry on. And he goes down the line, he calls back, I fooled you, I fooled you, I got pig iron, which may be a, a pun. Donegan, for some reason, introduces the concept of a toll booth into his version of the song. The signalman is, is saying, you, you gotta, or he says, you've got to pay a toll, but you don't have to pay a toll if you're carrying livestock. There never was a, a toll booth on any American railroad. I don't know where he got this from. It's, but the interesting thing was, he kind of watermarked the song or his version of the song with that. So if you hear a version of Rock Iron Line that talks about a toll gate, they've got it from Leadbelly. I got it from Lonnie Donegan, not from Leadbelly. And interestingly, Johnny Cash's first album for Sun Records in 1957 opens with Rock Iron Line and he mentions a toll gate. So we have a saying in folk music, what goes around comes around. Uh, but the idea of Lonnie Donegan influencing Johnny Cash, it kind of, sort of threw me a little bit when I kind of listened to his version of Rock Iron Line on Spotify. And uh, Donegan goes on tour in the United States of America uh, on a kind of rock and roll package tour, doing six shows a day, starting at 11 o'clock in the morning. And he's just got his acoustic guitar and he has to play with the pit orchestra. He has to play Rock Iron Line and... Um, Long John, which is his second single, he has to play with the pit orchestra and they just don't get it. They just don't get it. He's got no music. He's not, he's, Donegan's like me, he's not very musical. He can't write music notations. He's got no music to give him. So it's not working. They get to Detroit and one of the other bands on the tour, the uh, rock and roll trio led by Johnny Burnett, Johnny Burnett approaches him and says, listen, man, why don't you let us back you up instead of these old guys? Come on. And Donegan, being Donegan, says, oh, I'm not sure if I could afford that. And Johnny Burnett says, man, it's not about the money. We really like what you're doing. So for a few weeks on that tour from Detroit onwards, Rockabilly and Skiffle meet each other on equal terms and recognise that they are from the same mother, uh, from other side of the ocean, but from the same mother. Sadly, there's no recordings of that, but uh, Rockabilly is more or less the closest comparable uh, music scene in the United States of America, not just the similarity of no drums and no piano and guitar driven, but also in the way that rockabilly is also only lasts for a couple of years until it is superseded by uh, rock and roll in the form of Elvis at RCA. Elvis, when he's at Sun, he's playing rockabilly, arguably the best rockabilly band ever, Johnny Burnett Trio being the second. But rock and roll kind of sweeps the rockabilly cats away and it becomes you know, uh, uh, Pianos, Horns, Jerry Lee Lewis, all that kind of stuff. Little Richard, it changes completely. One of the issues uh, that Donegan falls foul of here in the United States of America are uh, accusations of blackface. Because he's addressing this material so aggressively, on his second single, some radio stations refused to play the single, uh, accusing him of doing an Amos and Andy. And it, the record label have to uh, explain that he's totally unaware of that and that he's doing it out of appreciation of Lead Belly. And then it sort of comes back and, and they end up playing his records. But it was uh, kind of notable at the time 
that white blue singers being much more aware of the racial connotations of appropriation were a lot more, should we say, a lot more careful with the material. Donegan wasn't aware of this at all. So Joe Boyd, um, talking in the book, says that, you know, uh, Joe Boyd, who produced a, a football convention and Pink Floyd and me and R.E.M. and a lot of uh, Nick Drake, he heard Lonnie Donegan in the 50s and felt he was the best white blues singer he heard until he heard uh, Jeff Muldoon and Bob Dylan in Boston in the, in the 60s. And Donegan was undoubtedly our, our, our best singer. But issues of appropriation are inherent in this. Lonnie Donegan on the original recording gets the writing credit for Rock Island Line. If you come to the United States of America, Alan Lomax, uh, uh, John Lomax, Alan Lomax's father gets the credit for writing Rock Island Line. And Huddy Ledbetter, well, who is Ledbelly? But neither Ledbe Ledbelly or Lomax wrote that song. It actually uh, has its roots in uh, the Rock Island line, uh, engineering works in Little Rock in Arkansas. That's where the song originally began. And then um, Ledbelly and John Lomax uh, first heard it when it was recorded uh, at Cummins State Prison Farm in Arkansas in, in 1935. Ledbelly was roadieing at the time for Lomax. And that's where Ledbelly picked the song up and he, he adapted a few other, took a couple of verses from the blues and some from a nursery rhyme and came up with a long intro and kind of added to the song. And in some ways, Donegan is taking part in that process by bringing in the, the toll gate. He's kind of adding to that folk process. But issues of appropriation around that material are kind of rather circular. In 1956, Donegan has a hit with a song called Stubal. Now, Stubal is quite a widely known folk song. Leadbelly recorded it. That may be where Donegan got it from. Woody also recorded it. Donegan also was the first person to put Woody Guthrie songs in the charts in 56. He recorded Dead or Alive and Grand Coulee Dam. Now, Leadbelly could have learned Stubal from two places. He could have learned it from his own experience working uh, in agriculture in Louisiana in the early part of the 20th century. But he also could have heard it in the context of working with John Lomax and Alan Lomax because they recorded it, sharecroppers, African-American sharecroppers singing the song uh, in the 1930s. And they said it was the most widely sung song among African-American sharecroppers that they found, Stubal. A hundred years before that, in the 1840s, it was being sung in bawdy houses in New York and Boston. A hundred years before that, it was being sold as a, a broadside ballad a sheet song on the streets of George and London. But the actual event it refers to happened in the Curra of Kildare in Ireland in the 1850s. So the question is, who does Stubal belong to? Does it belong to the, the people in Ireland, the people in George and London, the New Yorkers, the African-American sharecroppers? In some ways, Donegan has a good shout. His mother was Irish. Perhaps he has more shout on it than, than anybody else. And it's... Uh, it's a very, very important issue because before commerce became the main consideration uh, in uh, music and the music business, these things moved everywhere. You know, ultimately, music belongs to everyone. And that's one of the great things about it. It, it, can, it can break down barriers, uh, ethnic barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers. And, you know, whilst the appropriation of culture is an issue that we, you know, that needs to be addressed, the idea that music only belongs to one kind of people is kind of the antithesis of what music is trying to do. Because those skiffle kids were inspired by this music that was to them, it spoke to them in their, in their situation. You know, the pop music at the time was manufactured by uh, uh, Tim Pan Alley. Most of the songs in the charts came from American musicals or movies. These kids were getting it from somewhere else. They were getting it from the basement of the American embassy in uh, Grosvenor Square, where the American, the US Information Service had a library. And you could go in there and borrow, it's mostly books, but they also had a record library, which had all of the Library of Congress recordings. So they had Leadbelly's recordings there. Uh, and uh, lots of other great uh, blues artists in there as well. So they were getting this music from such a distant place to them. But they, it, it played a very, very important role in my country, different to the role that roots music played here in the United States of America. In 1959, the folk scene in New York City and in Boston becomes visible to uh, mainstream culture in the folk boom when the, the Kingston Trio have a hit with Tom Dooley. Kingston, Jamaica, they're originally a Calypso band. They have a hit with Tom Dooley. And the, the folk scene, the folk uh, revival, the folk boom, begins here in the United States of America. And in the context of that, there are 
a number of bands that go back to to find the old time music. The New Lost City Ramblers are the same age as uh, Donegan and Chris Barber and Ken Collier. Um, they go back to Appalachian, they rediscover people like Roscoe Holcomb and, uh, and Doc Watson. And what they're doing is they're, they're trying to reconnect with that past as a, as a way of, as a reaction to the commerciality of pop in, in late 50s America. The Skiffle Kids, paradoxically, were doing the absolute opposite. They were going back to that music, yes, but they were using it to, to make the future happen. The guitar to them was a brand new thing. Donegan breaks the wall of, uh, of British pop culture and he imparts to them the two most revolutionary ideas that have ever been imparted to British youth. One, you don't have to be a trained musician to make music. Two, you don't have to be an American to sing American songs. And he hands them the tool by which they will liberate themselves from the, the rubble of the war, from the, the, the drab existence of uh, uh, rationing, post-war rationing. Because what really bugs those guys is the BBC won't play rock around the clock. You're gonna ration rock and roll, Fuck you are. We're going to buy these guitars and we're going to make our own bloody rock and roll. Sod you. Forget it. And that's what Skiffle is. It's, it's very young British kids going back to the past, going back to Lead Belly, music that they themselves find and they make that music for other teenagers. But what they're trying to do is build a bridge. They're trying to build a bridge to the future. And they ultimately built a bridge so big that it crossed the Atlantic Ocean and went all the way to the top of the American charts. And that's what your skiffle is. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to The Strand Bookstore for hosting this event and for allowing us to release it as a podcast. If you enjoyed today's talk, definitely head over to The Strand or their website and pick up Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. For other awesome TalkHouse podcasts, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are offered. Today's episode was recorded by Charles Mueller and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. And of course, don't forget to head over to the Webbies and vote for us for best individual episode. Do it. Do it. Rock the vote. Till next time. Bye.